they walk into this household afraid and uneasy. And those fears were legitimate. This man had the power to destroy them. But see, immediately their fears are replaced with peace, not because they had an awesome gift to bring, but because the exalted servant showed them his favor. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at King's Cross Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thekingscrosschurch.com. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Our gracious servant King, as we open your word together this morning, we bow our hearts before your majesty. Lord, we ask this morning that the seed of your word would sow among us, not only in the thick of persecution, but Lord, in the thick of the cares of this world, neither of these would in any way impact the growth of your word, not only in our lives, but through our lives that it would yield a harvest of 30, 60, even 100 fold. Lord, we thank you that your word has the power to do that. So we are not approaching an ancient text that is dead, but one that is alive, living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, Lord, would you cut to the heart this morning? Would you do a work by your spirit in each one of our lives for your glory and our good? We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake alone. Amen. Amen. All of us, at one point in our life, will know what it's like to be indebted to someone else. It may not be that we owe them, but some have helped us in a bind, and we think to ourselves, hey, we owe them for helping us. Sometimes we sin against others, and when we do sin, we find ourselves in relational debt where I need to do something to offer retribution or restitution. In short, we simply owe a debt to others. And yet, the debt that we seem to owe others pales in comparison to the debt that we owe a holy God. Not only are we sinners, and so there's that debt that we owe that we cannot pay, but also the fact that God, in his grace, has bestowed his common grace upon all of his creatures. The psalmist asks a very important question in Psalm 116, 12. And he asks this, he says, what shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits to me? What can I give back to God knowing he has given me so much? And he answers his own question. His answer is essentially, well, I'll lift up a cup and just receive salvation. In other words, he's saying there isn't anything that I can do to repay the Lord. We will all of us live and die as debtors to God. Not only the debt of our sin, our guilt, as we talked about last week, demands a payment, but the question is, do we have the power or the resources to pay that debt? And every person on the planet is interacting with that question. It may not be the question of salvation in a religious sense, but certainly it's the question of salvation from plight and suffering. And every person on the planet, whether you're a Buddhist or you're Hindu, or you're an agnostic Wall Street investor, they may have different practices and different terms, but at the core, the idea is my performance will save. My performance will rescue me either from sin, hell, and death, or from suffering 
from disaster, from plight. The cry in every human heart is placing confidence in my own performance. But what if the problem is your salvation isn't up to your performance? What if the bar of perfection has been set so high that you don't even come close to reaching it? What if you finally learned the debt that you think you can repay through good works is actually impossible to repay? And that you this morning don't deserve salvation, but instead wrath and judgment? These are questions that everyone interacts with at some point and that we're going to interact with and answer today in, of all places, Egypt, with some Hebrews who begin this chapter hungry, and by the end of the chapter, they're not only well-fed, they're also quite intoxicated. And we've been studying the life of Joseph, and last week in Genesis chapter 42, we saw the first interaction that he has as the prime minister over all of the land of Egypt and his 10 brothers who had come to buy grain in the midst of the famine. Of course, we saw last week they don't recognize him from 20 years earlier. And so through a series of tests, they are sent back to their father in Canaan with grain, as well as all of the money that they had used to purchase the grain, unbeknownst to them until the end of the chapter. And in exchange for this, Joseph had ordered their brother Simeon to be put into custody until they bring back their youngest brother, Benjamin. And last week we saw the various responses concerning their guilt, their guilt with their brother that they had sinned against. And when the chapter concludes, they're back with their father and they're shocked and dismayed that all of their sacks are filled with money. And so to answer that, we saw last week, Reuben steps up and says, as the firstborn, I've been responsible and so you can kill my two sons. But of course, we saw last week, Israel, his father, refuses and says, if I lose my youngest son, Benjamin, you're going you're gonna to pull my gray hairs down with sorrow to Sheol. And, and that's how the chapter ends. And then we just read chapter 43. This ends quite different. There's not gray hairs and sorrow in Sheol. There's mirth and joy and feasting and drinking. And so this morning, what we're going to see at the beginning of this text is a, a change of heart in Israel as his son Judah steps up and takes responsibility and ownership for Benjamin. We're going to see the brothers preparing to go back to Egypt, this time with Benjamin, but now they're going to come ready to compensate for what they think is something they owe, what seems to be stolen. But here's what I want us to do this morning. I'm inviting you to do this. As we interact with this text today, I want to invite you to think of your own sinfulness, to think of our own indebtedness, and to realize we owe a debt we cannot pay through any good works, through attending church on Sunday, for dressing up and tucking in the shirt, for bringing your Bible to church this morning. There's nothing we can do to merit salvation, to compensate for the debt that we owe through any of our performance. We need, as our sermon title suggests, we need the favor of the exalted servant. And so this morning, if you're taking note, we're going to look at three things in our text, important things. Number one, the need for restitution, verses 1 through 15. There is a need for restitution, and the brothers see that. Secondly, the means of reconciliation, verses 16 through 25. And what is that means? How will they be reconciled with this person they're at enmity with? And thirdly, we'll see something they never expected, and that's the undeserved reward in verses 26 through the end. And my prayer, again, is that we, as we look through this text today, we would let the text look through us, that we would see our own emptiness, our unworthiness, our inability this morning 
to perform enough to be in right fellowship with our sovereign and provider. I feel it. You certainly feel it. May we feel it even more today. Our inability to perform in order to get into God's good graces. This morning, may we simply come at Christ's invitation and eat freely with them. And what happens is we find that we are filled to our surprise and delight. So let's begin with the need for restitution. Notice with me in verse one, it's not lost on us. It says the famine was severe in the land. It began in Egypt, but it has spread all the way to Canaan. And the brothers could not have known that this was going to last seven entire seasons. Of course, Joseph knew that, but the brothers had no idea. And so verse two says, when they had eaten the grain they had brought from Egypt, remember they had 10 bags worth, their father said to them, go again, buy us a little food. And so this may just be that very next year, the next season. They don't have sustainability in the land to continue growing crops. So now they're out of food and they're out of options. But we know there's a big problem. We can't just waltz back into Egypt, can we? Well, not without Benjamin. And so Judah brings up an important point in verse 3. Judah says, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. I love that Judah steps up here and he says, Dad, we can't get out of this. We're, we're nearing starvation. This is a desperate moment. There, there's nowhere else to turn. There's no alternative plans here, Dad. We have to face the reality that Benjamin has to go. And so in verse 6, Israel says, yeah, now that you brought that up, why did you bring him up in the first place? Why did you offer this information about Benjamin? Of course, they say, well, in verse 7, well, well, Dad, we had no idea. We're trying to be honest men, and he's suddenly very inquisitive, and so we had no idea that he would say, go fetch your brother. We had no clue. And yet at this point in verse 8, Judah steps up and takes the responsibility and the care of Benjamin. Now, you, if you've been with us for a while, remember Judah's story from Genesis chapter 38. This is Judah, the one who had impregnated his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Judah, who had brought reproach into his name, upon his name. Judah, the one who previously, remember, that whole thing happened because he was out for himself and for his family. Motivated by self-preservation. Now look how he walks in repentance. Notice verse 8. Judah said to Israel, his father, send the boy with me. We will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. Judah is saying the fate of our children is now going to rest in my sacrifice instead of my self-preservation. He says in verse 9, I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then... Let me bear the blame forever. Remember, Reuben, previously the firstborn, was responsible for the two sons that had gone missing, Simeon and Joseph originally. And so Reuben essentially said, okay, to make up for the loss of two sons, I will kill my two sons. And of course, thankfully, Israel rejected that offer. It was a bit of an odd offer. Those two dead grandsons will not bring back the two missing sons, so... Of course, Israel rejects that offer. But I think that it's a bold offer Reuben gives, but it's not really a personal one. 
this offers very little risk for Reuben. Essentially, his sons will be killed, but Reuben was basically just walk out the door, no responsibility, no blame. But the difference in Judah's response, notice, he steps up, he takes the full weight of the blame and the responsibility upon himself. He doesn't pass it along to his children. Back with Tamar, he had sought to preserve his son, preserve himself. Now he's willing to lay down his life so that his offspring are provided for. No one else will be harmed, just Judah. And this is a wonderful picture, isn't it, of Christ-like love. When we say to our friends, to our church family, to our spouses that I love you, okay, that love, L-O-V-E, is agape. That is Christ-like love. That is laying down our life and our priorities and our selfishness for someone else. And that's what Judah demonstrates here. But he also demonstrates action as he states the urgency of the situation. Notice in verse 10, he says, if we didn't delay, we could have gone back twice by now. So let's get a move on. And all of this convinces his father Israel. So notice in verse 11, Israel encourages them to bring a present down to the man. And notice it's a present of fruit. There's balm, there's honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Some commentators get really excited about this. Like, do each one of these represent some different aspect of the nature of God? No, they're actually just fruit. He's just bringing fruit. He's bringing a present. Now, remember who's sending the present. It's Israel, but who is Israel previously known as? What was his name before Israel? Jacob. Very good. And we know Jacob has already realized if I send a generous gift to a perceived enemy, that will soften the blow. He's already done that in Genesis chapter 32 with his brother Esau. Remember, as Esau was approaching, Jacob at that time was uh, very anxious about it. And so he sends ahead hundreds of animals, goats, rams, camels, cows, even donkeys. And so it's possible he's up to this tactic again. This worked before. Let's send a present again. Let's send a gift so that maybe we'll get in his good graces. And the fact that they're able to send this much food during a severe famine, that again displays to us the vast wealth that Israel and his family had. So he says, take this gift, take double the money, not only the money that seems to be stolen, but take money to buy new grain this year. And the most important thing, take Benjamin. Notice that here, Israel invokes the name El Shaddai. Notice verse 14. May God Almighty, El Shaddai, grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your, bro your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. And you want to circle that phrase, God Almighty. It's the name El Shaddai. Of course, it does mean God Almighty, but it can also be translated, the God who overcomes, or my favorite, God the all-sufficient one. It's mentioned seven times in our Bibles, five of which are here in the book of Genesis. The first was when God revealed himself to Abraham, El Shaddai, God Almighty. The second was when Isaac conferred that name as he blessed Jacob. The third is when Jacob, right after the disaster in Shechem, calls upon the Lord and the Lord reveals himself as El Shaddai. The fourth mention is here in our text. And the fifth and final mention is near the end of Genesis when Jacob blesses his children and he reminds them that God Almighty, El Shaddai, appeared to me all those years ago and has been faithful. You see, this was the name that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, consistently called on to remember 
as the God who is more than sufficient to keep all of his promises. God would accomplish all that he decreed and promises. So he's, he's calling on the blessing of El Shaddai upon his sons, and he's praying for mercy. He's praying that everything will work out, that, that Simeon and Benjamin would come home. He has no idea that God's going to answer that in a more powerful way than he could ever imagine and also bring Joseph back with him, so to speak. But notice the next part. He says, and as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Now, we may disagree on this, but as I read this, I can't help but wonder, is Israel having a little bit of fatalism here? Is this a little bit paradoxical? Is he in one breath praying for the Almighty God to grant mercy, but then in the next breath sort of resorting to, well, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. Or is that a statement of faith? Hey, I trust God. If I'm bereaved, then I'm bereaved. If I lose everything, I lose everything. But I trust in God Almighty. We're not sure. But we do know that bold and steadfast faith in the God who's more than sufficient to meet all of our needs, that bold faith does not tuck its tail and expect the worst. And we trust God. And so perhaps Israel, even after all these years of God proving his faithfulness to him, maybe he's still maturing in his faith. But his sons depart they head to Egypt. They hope that Benjamin and money and gifts of fruit will make up for the suspicion and the debt that they have dug for themselves with the Egyptian ruler. Now, as we think about this first point, this need for making restitution, often we act like Israel and not Judah. In other words, we think like Israel, maybe there's just an oversight. Like, like what's the big deal? Just, just go back and get grain. Like, there's been a big offense. You can't just go on business as usual. It needs to be made right. But sometimes we think, I know what's required of me, but let's just muscle past it and avoid reconciliation. But here's today's hard pill to swallow. The truth is, when you've sinned against others, you need to be willing to make restitution. Notice it doesn't say if you've sinned against others, because the truth is, if we're going to be in relationship one with another, we're going to sin against each other. Don't amen that, by the way. We're going to sin against one another. And this is the idea that Judah embodies. Judah's not just going to ignore the governor's request. He's not glossing over the money that was found. He's not passing the buck on to anyone else. You know, he says, let's be willing to make whatever has been wronged right. Not that they had stolen any money, but it was clear there was an offense against this governor, against this ruler, and that needed to be resolved. And when we're willing to make restitution. That doesn't mean we pay for our sins. Remember, that's impossible. But it does mean we're willing, at least, to make the responsible move to seek to make up relational debt. Jesus told us this in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5. He said, so if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you've paid the last penny. Notice that Jesus is giving us two illustrations here that both argue the same point. The first illustration uh, is that a worshiper is going to lay a gift at the altar for God. 
But then on the way there, you remember, oh, my brother has something against me. He says, before you worship, you're to make it right with your brother. The second example is when you're going to court before man. And, And before you walk and stand before the judge and your accuser, you're to find your accuser before the court. And you're to seek to make it right. In other words, Jesus is saying, not that someone else sinned against you, but he puts the weight or obligation of reconciliation on the one who's done the sinning. And so the relational priority, according to Jesus, whether it's before God or man, is to seek reconciliation. When we step up like Judah and are responsible, that's not blaming others. That's not putting the fault somewhere else. It's taking the blame upon ourselves. And we, when we sin against our brothers and sisters, should have the humility and the bravery to come to them and to make it right. Now, in some situations, that means literally, please forgive me. For other situations, like in our marriages, it's admitting those three little words that are the hardest to ever confess as a husband or a wife, and that is, I was wrong. (laughs) That is very challenging to say. Maybe for others, it's just simply returning something that you borrowed, that you took, that you forgot, that you misplaced, and it literally just needs to be returned. Did you know in 1863 in Tug Fork, Appalachia, a disagreement arose over, of all things, a hog. A hog went missing. And the argument turned fatal and then legendary as two families that I know you've heard of, the Hatfields and the McCoys, warred against one another for generations. Now, all of that could have been avoided if there was simply humility and seeking to reconcile. Now, as we consider this, we look at our second idea. The brothers arrive in Egypt and we see the means of reconciliation. Will the gift be enough? Will the present of fruit be enough to turn the wrath of the ruler away? Well, notice in verse 16, Joseph sees them coming and then he instructs the steward of his house to bring them in and slaughter an animal, prepare a feast, prepare a meal. You can circle that word steward. Uh, The word here for steward is the same word that was also used of Joseph back when he was the steward over Potiphar's household. So now he has his own steward. But then verse 18 says that the men, the brothers, were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. The word for afraid there does not mean a little bit slightly anxious. It actually means to be filled with dread. And why? Why were they filled with dread? Well, the text tells us. It says that they said, it's because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we're brought in, so that he may assault us and fall upon us to make us servants and seize our donkeys. You see, they're in line for the grain, and all of a sudden they're pulled out of the line and brought to the ruler's household. And now he's showing unusual kindness for them. He's now going to slaughter an animal. We're just here to buy grain. Now we're going to get an animal prepared for us. We're going to have lunch with him. He's fattening us for the kill. They're thinking, he's going to put us into slavery. He's even going to steal our donkeys. We're going to be building the pyramids by the weekend. We're going to be in a chain gang. And so in verses 19 through 22, they try to soft sell the whole situation to the steward. They're thinking, let's recount the details of the story to him because maybe he'll be our advocate. Maybe he'll feel bad for us and, and step in and give us a good word with the ruler. And they end this whole exact detail with, we don't know who put the money in our sacks. They're walking into this terrified. 
You could say they were expecting the worst, and yet what happens? Notice verse 23. Notice the reply of the steward. This is the last thing they would have expected. He replied, Shalom, fear not. Our text says, peace to you, shalom, do not be afraid. But literally, shalom, fear not. The steward brings peace in the midst of their fear. He comes to them with good news. He goes on and he says, your God, the God of your father, these are not two different gods. He's essentially reiterating the point. Your father's God, your God, he has put treasure in your sacks for you. I did receive your money. And that's not a lie. He did receive the money, but then Joseph had instructed him to put it right back. And then he brought Simeon out to them. They must be wondering, how are we receiving all of this favor? And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water and they had washed their feet and when he had given their donkeys fodder, then they prepared the present. In studying this, I saw a wonderful picture of the Holy Spirit represented in this steward. Just track with me for a minute. The, the steward, like the Holy Spirit of God, shows people the gifts that are theirs. He unites them with their brothers. He gives glory to God, not himself. And, and the steward takes what is Joseph's, what is Christ's, and passes it along to them. But notice that even with all of this, verse 25 says, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they feared that they should eat bread there. There was still fear. So they bring the present. Maybe the present will bring us into right standing. The, the means of the reconciliation was not their humility. It was not their repentant attitudes. And it was definitely not the pistachios. The means of their reconciliation, don't miss this, it was the initiation of Joseph. You see, they were mere recipients. They were recipients of the money, they're recipients of the grain, the water, the foot washing, even fodder for their donkeys. They were just recipients, glad recipients. They walk into this household afraid and uneasy. And those fears were legitimate. This man had the power to destroy them. But see, immediately their fears are replaced with peace, not because they had an awesome gift to bring, but because the exalted servant showed them his favor. What they feared would not have been dismissed because they brought gum and honey. Because what they hoped to reconcile in their own strength, it was impossible. No, they needed someone greater than them to come and to invite them and to settle the debt and to restore the relationship. I think about our own lives when I look at Joseph's example. And I think about on the flip side, not only when we've sinned against others, but what about when we've been sinned against? And we can apply it this way as we look at Joseph's example. When wronged, we can choose to repay evil with good. And that's what Joseph chooses here. Joseph finally has the opportunity to get revenge. If you're someone who loves the, the, the twist in the story, you're probably waiting for this moment. Okay, here's the moment. Joseph has given him all this stuff. Now he's going to strike and all their fears are going to be answered. Look at all the hurt and pain that they caused him all those years ago. They left him for dead. They sold him into slavery. They stole his youth and his clothing. They're going to get what's coming to him. And how does he repay them? He blesses them. Listen, this is not a virtuous thing. This is the mark of those who follow God. This is expected of us. 
This is what Christians do. This is what followers of God do. This isn't like super Christianity. This isn't like, oh, you, you've reached super status in your Christian faith. So now you can repay evil with good. Now, remember, Paul told us in Romans chapter 12, right after he explained the gospel in chapters 1 through 11, he then fleshes it out in real life, in real relationships. And he says this, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. And I wish he said most. Well, live peaceably with most. But if there's that one or two people that really get under your skin, don't worry about it. No, he says live peaceably with all. And then he says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, Give him something to drink. Don't give him salt. Give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It can be tempting, can it, to avenge ourselves. And I think that's why it's interesting. Forgiveness is often couched in financial terms. We use terms like they owe me or they will pay for what they've done. Or this sin that they've sinned against me has cost me and my family so much. This speaks of a debt that needs to be paid back. But see, what Paul admonishes us to do here in Romans is to let God pick up the bill. That we're not going to return that. We're going to let God settle it. I like what Spurgeon said about this. He said, you know the old saying, quote, returning evil for good is devil-like. Evil for evil is beast-like. Good for good is man-like. And good for evil is God-like. He says, rise to that godlike point, end quote. There's really nothing virtuous about this. This is simply following God. This is what Christ did at Calvary. He, when he was reviled, he blessed. He prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Not that he had ever sinned against anyone, but he took the responsibility, the blame upon himself, and he interceded for others. That's what we're called to do, to pray for others who wrong us, to forgive them, to seek their good, and to live peaceably. Well, Joseph's brothers have no idea what's coming next. But as we see here in this last section, they receive an undeserved reward. And that reward is intimacy with the ruler. Notice verse 26. Joseph comes home and they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them. And they bowed down to him to the ground. And verse 28 says, they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. Great humility. And Joseph asks about their father. And imagine his relief to hear, not only is Israel still alive, but he's well. And then notice verse 29. Verses 29 and 30, uh, we read them legibly, but I want you to picture the wave of compassion and emotion that would have overcome Joseph in this moment. It's been 20 years in the making. But it says, he lifted up his eyes, he saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. And then Joseph hurried out for his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep and he entered his chamber and wept there. In the original language, he ran into his inner room and ugly cried. That's in the Hebrew, he ugly cried. He wept there, why? Because 20 years of loss finally caught up coupled with the joy of seeing his own flesh and blood in front of him. And 
Maybe he's considering the dreams that he had, the promise of God, the faithfulness of God. And yet he's overcome and he weeps. Well, of course, he washes his face. He comes out. He says, controlling himself, said, serve the food. And then verse 32 is very insightful. It says, they served him by himself, they by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves. Why? Because the Egyptians could not eat with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. Now, in these verses, we get a glimpse into the racially segregated society that Egypt truly was. Egyptians believed as a people that they had come from the gods, but all other peoples came from lesser origins. And so for that reason, they didn't intermingle, they didn't intermarry with other nationalities, let alone eat with them. And H.C. Leopold says this, he says, it is, quote, it is known from Herodotus that Egyptians so abhorred things foreign that priests at least ate and drank nothing that was imported, nor would they use utensils for eating that had been used by Greeks, end quote. Now, consider God's providence and wisdom in this. Over and over, we've seen Israel's family being tempted to assimilate in with the neighboring peoples of Canaan. We saw it with Abraham. We saw it in Shechem. And given enough time, Israel would have simply been swallowed up by the Canaanite peoples. They would have just been another people group in the ancient Near East as their sons and daughters married into other people groups. And so to protect them from that, in his wise providence, God sends them to Egypt for 400 years into captivity, which yes, was awful, but was also an act of his grace because there's no way that Israel was gonna intermingle, intermarry with the Stoic Egyptians. So see, God was separating and preserving his people even in their exile and oppression. And we get a glimpse of that even in this noonday meal. And yet what happens next absolutely astonishes the brothers. Notice verse 33 and 34. They're sat together in the exact order of their birth, from the oldest Reuben to the youngest Benjamin. Now that's astonishing for two reasons. First of all, mathematically. Got any math nerds in here? This would essentially have millions of different combinations of the 11 brothers. And there's really only about a one in 40 million chance that they would be seated in exact birth order. But secondly, this is astonishing because this implies intimacy and knowledge. They're astonished because how can this powerful man know so much about us even more than we even imagine? How is this possible? And then as they're sitting, they're eating, they're enjoying the meal, and it says that five times as many portions are brought out to Benjamin. It's more than he can even eat. This is a picture of the special grace and favor of Joseph for his younger brother. More than he can even stomach is just brought out over and over. And the chapter ends simply with they drank and were merry with him. The word for merry literally means intoxicated. This is not a typical working lunch. They're enjoying a lavish feast where they can eat and be satisfied, where they can drink and their spirits are lifted up. Now, as we consider the waves of emotion that the brothers are feeling in Joseph's presence, we see them walking in with fear, but also humility, and then they end with awe. In one breath, they enter his presence terrified of the judgment that awaits. And this causes them to humble themselves low and offer all that they have. But then, to their surprise, they are blessed with a lavish feast, far greater than the meager gifts that they brought. 
They walk in with money, and yet they don't have to spend any of it. Because what they needed was not for sale. It was freely given to them. You see the parallels for us? If you're taking note, God's blessings far outweigh anything that we can offer him. We offer him our temporal lives, and what does he offer us? Eternal life. We, we bring our gifts, and we learn, wait, he gave us those gifts to begin with. We dare not walk into his presence with money seeking to purchase anything. We realize we can't outgive a merciful God who gave us, of all things, the gift of his own dear son. And so this morning, as we close this chapter, in chapter 44, we're going to see next week a final test for Joseph's brothers. And we're going to see the moment that changes everything for them as Joseph reveals himself. And we'll also see everything changing for the anxious, grieving Israel, their father. So I encourage you this week, please read chapter 44 and prepare your hearts for next Sunday as we'll come to the Lord's table and receive communion together as a church family. But as we consider this chapter in light of the gospel, I do want you to jot three things down if you're taking note. Number one, restitution must be made for the offense of lawlessness. You and I owe a massive debt of guilt and sin. You and I have transgressed God's law, not just outwardly, but from the heart. If you and I are honest this morning, we are adulterous, lying, greedy, and proud. And it isn't just that we owe God the debt of our sin. We also owe him for every gift that he graciously gives us. Think of the beautiful sunrise every morning. Every time a paycheck is deposited into your bank account. Every time your child or grandchild smiles. With every blessing that he's given us in his common grace, we see the debt that we owe him going deeper and deeper and deeper. The scenario, if we don't know God, couldn't be more bleak. The Westminster Shorter Catechism reminds us that all mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. That is your status this morning. Do not come before God in the hubris of your own works and say, that'll settle the debt. You owe a debt you cannot pay this morning. And see, that's the second point, the good news. The good news is this, that the exalted servant has paid the price and he has reconciled sinners with his father. You see, like Israel's sons who begin this chapter spiritually starved and famished, it's not because we lack bread, it's because we lack revelation. And we come seeking to satisfy his anger and to be reconciled to him with something that we bring. And see, the beauty of the gospel is there's nothing to bring except your sin, except the honest admission that you're a sinner in need of salvation. We come empty-handed. And I've said this recently, Jesus' last words from the cross were not, it has started. In other words, I'm beginning the work, now you need to carry on and do the rest of the work of justification. No, from the cross, Jesus cries out, it is finished. Your work of right standing, of being justified, it comes through faith in Christ. He cries out, it is finished. So how do we come to him? Not with our performance, not with our achievements, not with our perceived worthiness. We come empty-handed. We know the hymn, Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. 
Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Paul said in Philippians 3, as we just studied on Wednesday, we put no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in our performance. No, we lay all these things aside and we come to our king empty-handed. Everything that was to my profit I now consider loss. And so listen, the gospel, the good news is not an invitation for you to come and perform. It's an invitation to the undeserving, to the spiritually impoverished, to come and eat freely. This was lost in the first Adam and redeemed in the second. Irenaeus said, through a tree, we were made debtors to God. So through a tree, we have our debt canceled. This is good news. And we could end there with that good news, that we've been justified, that we've been made right, that we've been reconciled because of Christ, but it gets better. As wonderful as a forgiven debt may be, that's not all Christ has done. He also brings us into refreshing and unexpected nearness to himself. Our third point is that the unworthy, you and I, are invited to a lavish feast. Think of how we relate to these brothers. Fear is replaced with peace. Feet are washed. The meager gifts that you walk in with pale in comparison to his blessing. We find ourselves well-fed, intimately known, and surprised and delighted, astonished in his presence. You see, the unmerited favor of the exalted servant changes our status this morning from fearful to fed, from worried to welcomed, and from anxious to those who are in awe. And don't put the quote up there, Shelby, but F.B. Meyer says this. He says, quote, there is bread enough in God to supply every mouth of desire and hunger in your soul. You may have it for the seeking. Our Father's love is constantly devising means of expressing itself. His love puts money in our sacks. It invites us to its home. It spreads banquets before us. It inclines stewards to meet us peacefully. It washes our feet. It takes a tender interest in those we love. It wishes us grace from God. It adjusts itself to our temperaments and it puts us at ease so that gleams of light as to the love of Jesus strike into our hearts. You see, the good news this morning, church, is that Christ is not only the means of our salvation, but he's also the means of our satisfaction. So he invites you to come. This morning, come empty-handed. Come to the cross. Come to the empty tomb and find that there's a banquet feast waiting for the unworthy. Amen? Let's stand together. We're going to close in song, being reminded of the work of Christ in us. And so, Father in heaven, we thank you this morning that as we're about to sing, it's not I, it's Christ in me. Paul would say, I no longer live, but the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But it's Christ who lives in me. And so, Lord, we thank you that we are insufficient for these things. We come empty-handed, counting all things as loss. We can't bring money to purchase this. We can come indebted, and yet we find the debt is paid, and we find righteousness credited to our account, and as Paul would say in Romans chapter 8, he who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Lord, we thank you for the intimacy, for the fellowship, for the feasting 
that we have in Christ and that we look forward to at that last glorious supper as we're joined with you and the presence of sin is forever vanquished and defeated. We can't wait for that day. Until then, Lord, yet not I, but through Christ in me. This is our prayer. This is our hope. And we ask it in Christ's name. Thanks for listening to our podcast, King's Cross Church meets at 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. at the campus on Lena Road. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, don't hesitate to email us at info at thekingscrosschurch.com. God bless.